0: This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. of the speaker we have presenting the second seminar of the series. Roger really needs very little introduction here, but I'll give a very brief overview and background. Um, Roger is someone very closely associated with the Centre, as well as now being Emeritus Professor of Forced Migration. He was the fourth Director of the Refugee Studies Centre between 2006 and 2011, and he was Professor of Refugee Studies and the Leopold Muller Reader in Forced Migration. In addition to that, Roger's association with the Centre goes back even further, having been the founding editor of the Journal of Refugee Studies, and having been editor for a very long period between 1988 and 2001. Roger's scholarship has shaped forced migration. He's known very much in his early work on labelling, and also his work on the Greek Cypriot refugees. Since then, he's worked in a way that is at the interface between academic work, but also policy and practice, working on a range of topics, including the impact of humanitarian assistance on refugees and asylum seekers on protracted displacement, on shelter and settlement, receiving a range of grants which he's used to great effect to impact on the world of policy and practice. And most recently, Roger has turned his academic hand and expertise to the area of environmental displacement, receiving very prestigious grants to two projects from UNHCR, Norwegian government, the Swiss government, and most recently a large grant from the MacArthur Foundation to work on environmentally displaced persons. And we're very lucky to have him here as one well of this series to present on that work on the topic of environmental displacement and the challenge of right protection. Thanks for being here.
1: Uh, thanks, uh, Alex, for that very uh, fulsome introduction. i have left a little bit of time to give my lecture this evening. Um, how concepts of protection and rights are conceived in the, the context of displacement, particularly in the context of forced displacement, I think is a central concern of refugee studies, and it's been the focal point, I think, of the, the work of the Centre for 30, 30 years. But environmental and climate stress and their sort of potential uh, impacts on population displacement and migration, I think, provide an interesting new lens to explore how rights and protection are afforded to certain categories of migrants. I think it's a valuable lens because it's a a new or emerging area of migration, um, the volume of which is obviously very contentious and debatable, and the potential rights that these new migrants might uh, benefit from. I think it's also a valuable area because it deals with some of the kind of central issues which we're concerned with, I think, more widely about issues of causality, notions of force and enforced displacement, and the special conditions of protection that might apply in those contexts. But there's a paradox, it seems to me, and it's a paradox which became very evident in the work that I want to talk about tonight, which was the first of those projects uh, that Alex mentioned, a project which focused on four countries, and I'll say a little bit more about these in a minute, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Kenya, and Ghana. It's that in these countries and worldwide, obviously there's an increasing awareness of the potential population and sometimes the actual population displacement effects of environmental change and climate change. It's very high profile in countries like Bangladesh, in a constrained way in Vietnam, for example, it's part of the public policy discourse. But when it actually comes to considering the displacement impacts of climate change, population mobility and the likely involuntary nature of these movements, and especially if these outcomes start to pose questions about whether these migrants should be afforded some kind of rights and protection, having been forced to move, or perhaps uh, moving at least involuntarily, where their rights might be uh, diminished, then what strikes me and what struck me in these four countries is that the, the legal and normative frameworks dealing with rights for migrants, environmental migrants, and indeed internally displaced people more generally, are actually rather silent. Now there could be a number of answers to, or a number of explanations of that silence, One of them is obviously the notion that it's a future challenge that is not yet high enough up the political agenda. Another challenge might be that obviously there are competing priorities in many of these countries uh, where there are very limited resources. Um, They're countries that largely have relatively weak institutional governance capacities and issues of rights and vulnerable groups perhaps are not that high up the agenda. And obviously a, a, a very sort of salient uh, reason for the, the lack of uh, the development of normative and, and legal frameworks is of course the major problem of causality. How do you attribute displacement to the precise effects of climate and environmental change? I want to say a little bit more about these in a minute but the focal point of uh, what I really want to argue tonight is that there actually is potentially, I think, a, another explanation for this lacuna, certainly in the four countries, and I think to a certain extent in other countries where I know research is being done. James work in Ethiopia, for example, um, an EMU student who is working in Mozambique. And it's this: it's essentially that whilst the protection of rights intrinsically derives from from law, it's underpinned by legal concepts. What rights are actually protected and how they're protected is shaped by political factors, processes, and contexts. And what I'm going to argue is that at least in these four countries, and as I say, I suspect many others as well, the extent to which protection is afforded to people who are susceptible to environmental displacement, indeed to internal migrants as a whole, is really determined by a series of underlying structural uh, determinants, notably the p- political and historical contexts within which migration uh, is located in these countries and the extent to which perceptions of vulnerability and concerns about human rights in general provide a frame for uh, the development of uh, rights protection, access to rights protection for um, in, in my particular concern, environmental, uh, in, environmental migrants, climate change, uh, people displaced by climate change. As I say, I want to focus on four countries. In contrast to last week, they are big countries, They are countries which uh, both currently and certainly in terms of predicted numbers, the volume of migration uh, as a result of the impact of environmental change is very substantial. And there are countries where um, I think I would argue quite strongly that we're dealing with internal displacement, large numbers of internal displacement, some cross-border displacement, but certainly the majority of those who are going to uh, migrate because of climate change, environmental impacts, um, are likely to move internally rather than um, moving from the small island states we were looking at last week. And what I want to do is spend a short amount of time framing the issues and and just developing a little bit the thesis about rights and protection in general. Then I want to make a short introduction to the field setting, the four countries and the research on which uh, the paper is based, and then obviously the main part of the presentation, focusing on uh, displacement rights and protection, the the protection gap, and focusing particularly on these two uh, concepts and policy areas of migration and rights and their, their conjuncture. If we look first of all then, just by way of background, at the conjunction of migration, particularly in voluntary migration and rights protection, of course there is a very long sort of policy and conceptual history going back 60 years at least. Uh, and although international law makes no reference to protection, it doesn't define protection, there certainly is a whole portfolio of instruments, conventions, and protocols which deal with the concept of protection, whether it's voluntary or forced, temporary or permanent, internal or cross-border. Obviously starting with the Geneva Convention Protocol, Conventions on Statelessness, the Regional Conventions of the African Union and the Cartagena Convention. Um, the Conventions on Statelessness, the 1998 Guiding Principles on Internal displacements, very specifically targeted to different groups of essentially forced migrants and then obviously broader um, norms and conventions and international law dealing with migrant workers dealing with trafficking uh, dealing with indigenous peoples and so on so there is a, a vast portfolio in which rights and mobility and migration protection of rights have been sort of harmonized if you like through international law and then of course increasingly the range of international legal instruments which provide, uh, which although they don't deal with migration as such, provide an increasingly relevant and are increasingly invoked um, set of instruments, subsidiary and complementary protection through various human rights, covenants and so on and so forth, temporary protection status. So there is a very sophisticated and well-developed portfolio protection for different categories of migrants in terms of their safety, in terms of security, in terms of reducing vulnerability, protecting and safeguarding political, civil, economic and social and cultural rights. I think it's useful to think of it in terms of um, protection as a commodity where we're essentially dealing with uh, physical assistance to displaced people and I suppose archetypally shelter provision and that's significant because a lot of protection I'm going to be talking about derives from this very uh, humanitarian, disaster-driven perspective in relation to uh, climate change and extreme weather impacts. But it's also, I think, useful to focus on protection as a series of processes or actions. And here I think we enter a much more politicized territory, which is going to be the focal point of the presentation. Uh, where protection may occur at a very high level of international actors or at a very low local level of civil society, organisations and national jurisdictions. And it's essentially a process that I think the issue of protection becomes, as I say, highly politicised, and not least in the context of environmental factors. So in other words, protection, protection of rights of migrants and people who are displaced is a a long-standing, accepted, and indeed an expanding uh, concept and set of norms and practices embedded in in state responsibilities and the the role of international actors. However, when we come to see the way in which um, these notions and practices and norms of protection relate to the field of environmental displacement and climate change, there is clearly a significant uh, set of questions here. Uh, And the question is really the extent to which climate change and migration is likely to impinge upon the enjoyment of a wide range of rights by those people on the move as a result of climate effects. And there is a very powerful case developing uh, for expanding the capacity of rights-based norms and instruments for the protection and support of environmental migrants. Uh, not least because the numbers are very substantial. There are security issues, cross-border issues. Uh, What framework might these migrants be um, accepted, protected, responded uh, in? There are certainly going to be uh, growing pressures on access to land uh, by substantial numbers of people on the move, water and other resources. So there are kind of security uh, issues uh, at stake here. And I would argue that rights and protection, then, are part of this bigger challenge, really, of managing the consequences of climate change, environmental change, particularly with respect to migration. And human rights instruments, I think, provide an important set of instruments by which that management can take place. So there's a plausible argument, I think, for expanding and extending the notion of uh, rights protection to those who are displaced, perhaps involuntarily, by climate environmental change. And yet there is a protection gap, which many of us have identified. And my work, and many others, speaks to the nature of this protection gap, and I already outlined it at the beginning, in terms, obviously, the cause and effect, the deterministic link between climate change and environmental change and migration. Conceptually and empirically, it's extremely difficult to separate the two or to relate the two and to, as it were, isolate um, the particular role of climate change or environmental factors in displacement over and above other kinds of variables such as the socio-political and economic context within which people's livelihoods are situated and the kind of resources they use to sustain those livelihoods. So both in academic discourse and policy debate um, there is increasing evidence that privileges if you like, multi-causal explanations and I think this is one and a very important reason why um, rights protection has been so hard to develop because we can't develop easily a label of an environmental or a climate change migrant or displaced person The second area of course is uh, that a lot of the instruments that protect the rights of migrants deal with those who are involuntarily migrating, forced migrants we might say uh, classically refugees. But to what extent is the environment uh, or acts of nature, to what extent can they be construed as agents of force compared with the the force of persecution or conflict which underlines many of the conventions and protocols I mentioned. And then I think another kind of challenge in terms of trying to understand the nature of this protection gap is what I call the locus of responsibility for protection. And it's in this way because the over the last 10 years, perhaps a little bit less has been a profound shift in the environmental debate from environmental change per se to its human and its people impacts. And that nature, that change I think, um, and therefore the way in which those changes impact people who might be Uh, required or may through their agency move as a result of uh, environmental change. It shifts the locus of responsibility in terms of simply a humanitarian response to people moving because of disasters to much wider questions of restorative justice. Where should that protection, where should the, the locus of protection lie? Should it lie within the countries which are directly affected where people are moving because of most evident at the moment extreme weather events but potentially obviously long term changes through rising sea level or is it a global matter a matter of global concern and global protection and again the moral imperatives if you like of those different arguments have made it extremely problematic to develop the notion of protection so that's really my kind of entry point if you like or the set of entry points And what I want to talk about now is the second part of the study, which is providing the kind of empirical context within which I explore some of these questions more directly in the four countries. And it's a study that, uh, as Alex said, was funded by UNHCR, the governments of Norway and uh, Switzerland, and um, the report was published uh, just under a year ago what I'm trying to do is to develop um, an argument uh, which is implicit in the presentation of the report but trying to draw it out in a, in a much more kind of focused and nuanced way than was presented very much for policymakers and the policy making audience. Four countries uh, chosen... Um, to typify, if that is possible, different forms of uh, slow onset change, rising sea levels in the case of Bangladesh and Vietnam, um, desertification um, in the cases of Kenya and Ghana, but in all four countries, a detectable pattern of uh, increasing extreme weather events as well. It's a representative sample or not of four environmentally stressed countries, different environmental conditions. Very different internal and regional migratory impacts. Um, two archetypal uh, scenarios of slow onset change. Very varied legal and normative rights protection apparatus, and that's really what the, the study was about, as I'll explain in a minute. But also, um, very significantly, different government structures. Um, a one, nominally a one party state in Vietnam. Um, countries which have much stronger kind of democratic traditions, the other three countries to a certain extent but also countries where the kind of underlying nature of governance, civil society, is still somewhat fragile What the study was about was, as I say, it was essentially a a policy-driven study, it was Uh, aimed at trying to investigate um, the legal and normative apparatus with respect to um, rights protection, particularly in the context of environmental displacement. And I think, as far as I'm aware, it was the first kind of empirical and systematic study of these kinds of issues, certainly on a multi-country and a multi-regional frame. But what I was interested in is the extent to which legal and normative frameworks of rights protection in this country, to the extent to which they existed, first of all, but beyond that, the extent to which they, 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 they might mediate the impacts of displacement on people moving because of environmental change, and whether they were in any way instruments that might support strategies of adaptation and resilience for those at risk of displacement. And the objective was obviously to try and provide some kinds of recommendations for uh, national and international policymakers in respect of those kinds of the implications and the findings. Just to uh, conclude this part, then, to frame some of the um, policy context within which we're then going to look much more closely at the rights and migratory uh, frameworks. In all countries, certainly in Vietnam and Bangladesh, there is a very very powerful uh, discourse a political discourse, a framework of policies dealing with environmental climate change Bangladesh is certainly sort of right up there in terms of profiling these issues and in terms of raising its own profile in the sort of international debates about these impacts Vietnam in a very different kind of way is also has probably more than any of the other three countries mainstreamed um, environmental climate change policies um, in, the developments, in its development strategies over the next five to ten years. Less so in Kenya and Ghana and we'll look at reasons for that uh, in a minute. Both Vietnam and Bangladesh have a whole raft of climate change plans, policies, disaster preparedness and a range of institutions and civil society actors, in the case of Bangladesh, not in the case of Vietnam, who are involved in these kinds of concerns. And obviously, in all these countries, that links to the wider framework of international uh, NGOs and so on, particularly with response to the DRR, the disaster risk reduction mitigation plans, and the disaster, the way climate change and environmental impact present in terms of so called natural disasters. It's interesting to see the way that the the policies have been framed, and I think that this has implications for what I want to say later, framed very much in terms of this kind of disaster and humanitarian uh, frame, uh, context. Uh, Much less so in terms of a developmental challenge, but very much in terms of the immediate responses to disasters looking at preparedness for uh, the potential impact of disasters and some of the short-term post-disaster reconstruction strategies. It's very much, I would argue, framed as a humanitarian rather than as a developmental challenge. So, so I think this has implications and is part of, the, part of the way in which governments, the governments I'm talking about, have been re- in, a, in a sense reluctant to frame it in terms of um, rights-based and rights-based concerns, because of the various implications I'm going to talk about. In all these countries, notwithstanding the fact that climate change and environmental impacts are very high profile, except for the very specific use of the term relocation in Vietnam, Vietnam doesn't talk about displacement, it doesn't talk about resettlement, it talks very specifically about relocation. Except for Vietnam, policies are silent on the migratory impacts and silent on displacement. So again, the focus is very much on the disaster impacts and disaster recovery and disaster preparedness, but less on these kind of long-term and potentially quite substantial movements of people and the implications that that might have. And that, I think, is then reflected more, uh, or reflected down, if you like, into a gap in the legal and normative frameworks to protect these people who are or may potentially be on the move so now moving to the core of what I want to uh, argue today and really in a a phrase it's what I would call the significance of context Um, and this really is the the crux of the argument And, and what I want to show um, and and, uh, I think the evidence is quite compelling is that the extent to which uh, protection is afforded and it's very very limited I think uh, in relation to people who are susceptible to displacement because of environmental and climate change is very much related to, as I said at the beginning, the politico-historical context within which migration and the rights-based discourse is located in these countries and also in terms of the way vulnerability um, is perceived and the way in which vulnerable people um, are afforded access to rights and rights protection. And I think we can develop this argument a bit further in terms of the kind of classic Mertonian distinction between the, the manifest and the latent conditions. The manifest conditions, and fairly prosaically, and it's not to deny their significance, the lack of government capacity, technical knowledge, limited environmental law, there's only one environmental lawyer, for example, who works in the Ghanaian government, or the was when I did the study. Limited adherence um, and a willingness to commit to the guiding principles on internal displacement. So there are a number of, as I say, fairly prosaic explanations. And the study spent quite a long time talking about the, these limitations. But I think much more significant and uh, of my concern today is really that we, we need to turn to what one might call the latent conditions and factors because the normative frameworks on the one hand, the government policies in relation to migration displacement on the other, don't exist in a vacuum. The conjunction between them is mediated by the historical contexts, the political context within which migration has presented itself in these countries in the past, past and present processes, the socio-economic and development circumstances of the country, which influence the kind of population movements that have and are taking place, not just because of environment and climate change, the, what I call the political saliency, uh, or in most cases the denial of migration and displacement um, within the discourses in these countries, and particularly the extent to which migration policy features within government discourse and action, and on obviously the disposition of these countries towards human rights and the notion of the extent to which human rights might be embodied, incorporated and embedded in uh, national constitutions or other legal and normative instruments. And these contextual factors, I think, have an extremely significant bearing on how the four countries are responding to the emerging pressures of migration and displacements uh, induced by uh, environmental factors such as climate change. And more particularly I think they're having a very significant effect on the way migration and population displacement is perceived internally and the willingness of these countries to develop human rights protection. And their focus as I said uh, and emphasize again on humanitarian responses rather than rights and developmental responses I think is symptomatic of this as it were, denial, um, or um, perhaps too strong a word, the kind of subversion, if you like, of rights and protection within other policy frames. I want to now look at each of these countries in terms of the protection gap around migration, and then in terms of the protection gap around, the, uh, 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 around rights, how they're conceived, how they're articulated. And what I want to do is to provide um, a kind of overview of each of these countries to really further the case that I'm trying to make, that both in terms of migration and in terms of rights, arguably these countries are in a kind of state of denial, if you like, and there are, I think, quite powerful explanations of why that denial uh, still exists. If we take a country, or the first country, Vietnam, There has been enormous population relocation since the end of the Vietnam War in the late 1970s. Something in the order of 13 million people at least have been relocated since the end of the war until about 2009. But that internal migration or relocation has been very stringently controlled. Through uh, household registration systems and the access to uh, sort of benefits, resources, food, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and employment opportunities. Um, and where migration has and location has been sanctioned and and enacted by government or planned by government, these are policies which really are re- aimed at relocating rural people and have been policies essentially trying to deter people from moving from the countryside to cities. However, partly the economic reforms in the mid-1980s, and in any case the spontaneous migration that has taken place in Vietnam over this last 30-year period or so, spontaneous migration, in fact, is, to the extent one can find data on this, is probably larger than the relocated uh, population that I talked about earlier the point I'm trying to make is that migration in a sense is seen as a state activity a state controlled activity and any form of relocation or population displacement is mediated through the arms and the, instrument of the, the, the instruments of the state and the, the, the arms of government so that although there is a spontaneous migration and therefore some notions of voluntary migration. The regulatory, regulatory system in effect tries to deter people from moving except within the framework of very strict government policies. And as we'll see in a minute, there are very substantial government policies to relocate depending on which plan you read, something of between about 130,000 households to 350,000 households from the Mekong Delta the most flood-prone areas of the delta in the next five years. So there are very substantial relocation plans, but migration and mobility displacement is seen as a process which has to be highly managed by the government. If we take the case of Kenya, uh, internal migration, and it's mainly internal migration that I'm talking about and displacement, are closely linked with a a complex (coughs) matrix of land issues. Land is a crucial element uh, in the equation since it's the principal means of livelihood for the vast majority of Kenyans, yet only probably about a quarter of the land area is is fertile and can can sustain uh, rural livelihoods. The second factor is that uh, (coughs) migration mobility is obviously rooted in the country's colonial history where African lands were confiscated, inhabitants forcibly removed, and various communities now are putting forward these historical injustices to, uh, to claim property restitution. So again, issues of migration and historical context and how they present in, in, the, in the current political arena become significant. And they become highly politicized because, of course, the ethno-political dynamics of population movement in post-independence Kenya, let alone forced movement in colonial Kenya, are factors which lie behind recurrent clashes and obviously the conflict-induced displacement from the elections both in 1992 uh, and 1997, and obviously most recently in 2007, 600,000, 700,000 people displaced. Uh, in in the most recent events. Another dimension of migration and displacement is obviously underscored by the scale of internal spontaneous migration which has produced enormous uh, informal, illegal, irregular settlements and appropriation of land, sometimes public land, often private land in both rural and urban areas. So again we can see the way in which land, livelihood and migration um, and population mobility are inextricably linked together in in a country like Kenya to the extent that they become sort of politically salient, but in terms of how they might be represented in terms of the rights of particular groups who have displaced or have moved themselves or have been forcibly migrated, the extent to which is represented in some kind of rights-based discourse, I would argue, has been suppressed. Turning to the last two countries, again, the migration regime of Bangladesh is represented, I think, in three huge episodes of forced population mobility. The partition in 1947, the establishment of Bangladesh in 1972 with huge population upheavals which presented themselves at that time, something in the order perhaps of 10 million people were temporarily displaced, Particularly following the severe famine two years after the independence of Bangladesh in seventy four, but lying behind that is the substantial um, transnational links between Bangladeshis uh, in Bangladesh and those living in India. There are many millions of Bangladeshis present in India, and from the point of view of the government's concern, keeping a low profile about the implications of a very large number of. Undocumented Bangladeshis in India is obviously an important part, uh, is a reason why the government uh, keeps silent on these issues because of the, the, the kind of potentially sort of politically explosive nature of um, the presence of large numbers of Bangladeshis in India. So, again, migration is an integral part of the history of the country, yet, a migration and population mobility both internally and, and externally is politically very problematic to absorb within, if you like, particularly in the case of a country like uh, Bangladesh, where forced migration is part of a kind of traumatic history, which is almost excised from the national psyche. And as a result, I think, finds it hard to manoeuvre itself into political space and the development of policy responses in the current uh, period. And then finally, Ghana, slightly... um, in a sense slightly distant from these other three cases Um, internal, external migration, hosting refugees from the region have been long features of Ghanaian society um, both in the colonial period uh, when there was again substantial movements of people um, and more recently um, more sort of orthodox patterns of mobility are present there so that in a sense Although migration is, again, part of the political and historical context of Ghana, uh, it's less politically sensitive. And I think we also have to remember that, unlike the other countries, a substantial part of Ghana is still under customary administration, which, again, perhaps masks some of the migration movements and the migratory pressures that occur on land. So what we find is that in each of these countries, the migration histories and the politics are highly sensitive and they're very complex and they shape um, the response to contemporary patterns of migration environmental displacement uh, in a way that i think uh, is very problematic for each of these countries and it becomes particularly problematic if one then starts to look at these episodic um, uh, events and these histories and politics uh, if one starts to look at those in the context of saying well migration takes place, it's been very problematic uh, for quite long periods of time. It represents itself in in different era and in different ways. But the extent to which it then uh, links to the notion of whether uh, migrants should have rights, as I say, I think becomes uh, particularly problematic. And I now want to look at each of these countries um, for the last part of the lecture to see the way in which the notion of rights, whether we're dealing with right migrants or other forms of rights, um, is particularly problematic. And then, if the conjunction of the two, I think, is uh, is inevitably doubly problem- problematic. In Vietnam, the 1992 Constitution enshrines uh, access to uh, citizens to rights, including uh, migrants, certain basic rights including, in theory, freedom of movement and residence, although this has been very, very highly controlled, certainly for the first two decades uh, post-Vietnam uh, post War. However, the concept and practice of human rights in Vietnam and their protection is still, I would argue, a kind of nascent phenomenon in that country. And as I've argued earlier, the the rights of freedom of movement, for example, are very heavily circumscribed by the household registration system. Nonetheless, except for the discussion of political rights, most topics are no longer taboo, although I would argue that rights-based frameworks are not yet an active component of political discourse in uh, Vietnam. They're not framed in that kind of language. To the extent that they are raised, They're discussed in terms of needs rather than rights, and they are not individualized. They are located, if you like, within community and local frameworks. The concept of displacement and rights arising from uh, displacement is non-existent. As I said earlier, reading the documents, or reading the documents in translation self-evidently, the term relocation is used, resettlement, displacement are phrases and and descriptions that never appear in those documents so in other words relocation is used and the language that is used is is a very instrumental language in relation to uh, government concerns and the government taking a lead in these processes there's no independent uh, functioning civil society which there is, is in these other countries which might help to elaborate a discourse on political rights and issues of protection, although there is some community participation in environmental policy. And Vietnam has a very limited uh, ratification of international conventions and treaties on migration as well. So there's a paradox in that in Vietnam, of all the four countries that I looked at, climate change issues are mainstreamed much more than certainly Kenya and Ghana and even to a a, a greater extent than Bangladesh Um, as a developmental, not a humanitarian issue but when it comes to making explicit the processes of mobility as a result of climate change issues and particularly where there are very strong government directives and demands that people will be relocated because of uh, particularly rising sea level salination and so on Uh, When it comes to that kind of link then the government is really rather silent on these processes and the failure to promote human rights stems I would argue less from the fragility of government which perhaps is the case in in Kenya to a lesser extent in Bangladesh Um, and less a failure of political will but much more a result of the prevailing model of, of government and the contrasting conception of what human rights are and how they're embodied in the structure of a one party state. In Bangladesh, as I've said, there is a very active discourse on environmental uh, change using the somewhat sort of passé vocabulary of environmental refugees and climate victims, which many of us don't use any longer. Uh, But that is still, that's sort of very much part of the Bangladesh profile. And at the same time, Bangladesh has a very active civil society, well-developed constitutional provisions for rights in a whole range of areas. Yet when it comes to looking specifically at policies on displacement and particularly the rights which might be accorded to people displaced by rising sea levels, for example about a million people a year are displaced in Bangladesh uh, by flooding and uh, riverbank erosion for which there is no protection, no rights protection and uh, although in theory there there are compensatory mechanisms, they, they don't exist in practice. When it comes to looking at the way in which, as I say, displacement might be embodied or represented in the protection of rights of people moving, the government and government policies are silent. There is no recognition at all of the 1998 guiding principles on internal displacement, for example. They're not incorporated into, at least in in a self-evident way, in government policy and practice. To the extent that there is um, a proxy representation of the guiding principles, it's very much on that sort of central, the guiding principles talk about protection before, during and after displacement because of natural disasters and conflicts the extent there is a focus it's very much on that central part uh, during uh, displacement, in other words the kind of disaster relief, the disaster response framework so framed very much as a humanitarian response but not in terms of long term rights for uh, protecting people either temporarily or permanently displaced. So as I would argue, um, as I have argued earlier, the kind of resistance, if you like, to embodying some of these concerns in a rights-based framework for those migrants displaced by environment and climate change. Forced migration, if you like, as I said, is a trauma which is sort of excised from uh, the national psyche and in terms of presenting it in rights one sees it as a humanitarian default, as I've said there, rather than um, as a more systematic response. And you can see this played out in terms of, say, Cyclone Island in 2009, half a million people were temporarily uh, landless and homeless. Uh, Fortunate ones were able to reinstate themselves once the stress was over, but those many thousands were permanently lost their land simply join the broad category poor and landless displaced. There were and there are no long-term policies of rehabilitation and no forms, no effective forms of rights protection. Kenya again I think presents an interesting case when one looks at the framework of human rights regimes and then how they might be Uh, focused and shaped in the context of the specific group of uh, migrants that we're talking about today there is a functioning civil society in Kenya although I would argue much weaker than say in a country like Bangladesh but the political complexity of rights based issues I think is epitomized in the post election violence in 2007 which highlighted major gaps in the protection of internally displaced people and the extent to which the government now is developing uh, either draft national policies on internal displacement and protection for IDPs either specific uh, normative and legal frameworks or in terms of the new constitution the extent to which rights for migrants are being embedded in these instruments particularly with regard to environmental and uh, climate change concerns I think is very very limited what is happening is that the constitution and the draft national policies are focusing very much on uh, displacement as a result of the post-election violence, um, but are not seeing it in terms of um, a bigger uh, institution and operation, development of an operational framework for um, the impacts of uh, displacement as a result of environment and climate change. There was a kind of stalemate, I think, in the constitutional development there. And it's displacement, as I say, from political violence and natural disasters, which um, is the mainstream. And Kenya has not yet acceded to the Kampala Convention, for example, on internal displacement. And finally, and briefly, uh, Ghana. Of the four countries, um, Ghana, I would argue, has mainstreamed the least issues of environment and climate change and in a sense I think that's replicated and reflected not through a process of denial and uh, subversion if I can use that expression uh, in, in terms of how these issues are represented in rights but really as I say rather by default and perhaps by a sense that the pressure of uh, mobility as a result of environmental climate change is less present and is less part of the political discourse of that country than it is in the, in the other three that we've looked at there's limited civil society activity here as there is in Kenya with respect to environmental issues um, as compared with say a country like Bangladesh there's no IDP protection no acknowledgement of the guiding principles as yet which um, as I've argued in a lot of my work I think are the most potentially most significant vehicles by which rights protection might be extended to uh, environment and climate change uh, displaced people. So, to wind up then, what I've tried to argue is that there is a lack of uh, clearly articulated and agreed uh, national policies for IDPs with respect to environmental displacement, particularly where the question of that displacement impinges on the rights of people on the move, and that despite the um, diverse histories and political, regi- political regimes in the four countries and the uh, different political saliency of uh, migration and displacement issues, there are only really quite modest differences in terms of their disposition towards human rights protection for um, the particular category that we're looking at. In general, human rights protection, I think, is very weakly embedded in the political discourse of the governments of these countries. And one could argue that, by and large, they are unsympathetic to promoting human rights policies and practices in general, because of the histories that I've tried to elaborate, but more specifically, I think, in terms of um, the links with environmental displacement. Um, And I would argue the prognosis for developing the protection of the rights of those displaced by environmental changes is accordingly rather poor. It is indeed partly, can partly be explained by a lack of political will and commitment, competing national priorities and so on, in which rights perhaps are kind of lower order uh, concerns, uh, lower order motivating factors than other development and policy, poverty reduction uh, aspirations. But I would argue that um, there is a kind of structural explanation lying behind that, and much more problematic, if you like, with respect to provision and protection of human rights in relation to migration and displacement is the enduring kind of political denial of migration or the, the enduring political problematic of how migration is responded to in the histories and the politics of these countries and the policy and social challenges, which um, developing those histories into a contemporary response in terms of rights and protection is equally problematic, and it's this interplay between the, the political sensitivity, if you like, with respect to migration histories, and the sensitivity of institutionalizing, rights, institutionalizing rights-based norms and legal instruments, given the fragility of these countries, which leads to this kind of prevailing uh, political vacuum and what I call the protection gap. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Force Migration online. www.forcemigration.org podcasts